Well, good evening and welcome again to the Neighborhood Church. I'd like to invite you, if you brought a Bible, to turn to Luke. If you didn't bring one, there's one in the seat back in front of you. Luke is toward the back half of the Bible. It's one of the stories of Jesus we call the Gospels. And we'll be there in the ninth chapter in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you something you already know, that it's Black History Month. And one of the TED Talks I watched this week had a lot to do with black history and a lot to do with the question, can we amend history? We can't erase history, and too often we want to explain away history, but I think black history in this question gets at something interesting, can we amend or shift our focus? This was the question posed by artist Titus Kafar. And in his 2017 TED Talk, he stepped on stage and he had a large canvas covered up behind him. And behind a drape was a loose copy that he hand-painted of a 17th century portrait of a wealthy white family. It was painted originally by a Dutch painter and he painstakingly created something that looked nearly identical. So as he's posing this question, can we amend history? He pulls the cover down, and then he takes a brush, and he dips it in some white paint, and with long and broad brush strokes, he starts to paint in white over the images of the family, leaving something that looked like this on stage. And you'll notice that I said his question was, can we amend history, not erase it? He made note to say, don't worry, this white paint will become more and more transparent as time goes on. It was cut with water, and it'll fade, but not before he centers our gaze on the forgotten black boy in the middle of the painting. All of a sudden, this prop or in their estimation, a possession, is moved from the background to the center of the composition. He's amending history. He's bringing to focus the unseen, the oppressed, the overlooked. And what he's doing, I think, is bringing balance and wholeness and flourishing. You can look up this TED Talk, and he says... Art historians know more about the necklace that the lady of the house is wearing than they do this human child. And that's a history that needs amending. It needs being put into balance and wholeness and flourishing. Those histories that are often ignored or forgotten. You know, the Bible has a word for balance and wholeness and flourishing. And that word is shalom. Have you heard this word shalom? You've heard the word shalom if you've been greeted by some people that say shalom. You've heard shalom hidden within the name Jerusalem. Shalom is a Hebrew word, so it's in the Old Testament, as Christians call it, the Hebrew Bible, and it's a word that gets translated into English as peace. The problem with our English word peace is that it's not as fully orbed as the word shalom is. It's also not as fun to say. 
But that word shalom doesn't just mean the English like absence of conflict or that things are at peace. It also means that there is a flourishing, a well-being. It's in short, the way things ought to be. The Bible word shalom is what it looks like when God's in charge. And that word shalom is at the center of our fifth core practice. And our fifth core practice is to bring peace. And it's where we commit to partner with God in his mission to bring his shalom, holistic peace or well-being, to our neighborhood and world. One of the questions that we used to ask our kids in our neighborhood kids ministry is, what does it look like when God's in charge? And I love the responses that come back because it's just like innate. They recognize that things would look different if God was fully, totally in control. And it would look like people having enough food to eat and clothes to wear. People are treated with respect and dignity and kindness. And people have a good community and good work to do. And we say, that's exactly what it looks like. That's shalom. And I think about how a year ago, my oldest asked me on the way to school after a question like that. And she said, when is God's kingdom going to come? And I said, well, that's the thing. It has, but not fully. And so the invitation for God's kingdom people is to partner with his mission to bring more of the kingdom of heaven, more shalom on earth as if God was in charge. So another way that we could say shalom and kingdom together is that shalom is present when the kingdom of God is resident. That's what it looks like when God's in charge. I keep gesturing here because this is usually where I put the kids when I don't have an intro and I need to ask them something to get this thing going. Shalom is present when the kingdom of God is resonant. And that's true because every moment of Jesus' ministry, from the beginning words in Mark, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand. Every moment from that moment till he leaves to go back to the Father's right hand, every moment was an announcement or enactment of the kingdom of God. And what does the kingdom of God look like? Shalom. What does shalom look like? The reign or the kingdom of God. Let's just let the church father origin in the second generation of Christians say it best. Jesus is the kingdom of God in person. Hello, that's powerful. What does God look like? Jesus. What does the reign of God look like? Jesus. You want to know what it looks like when God's in charge? Follow Jesus around and you will see. He's not just going to announce it, he'll show it. That's where we're going to see in Luke chapter 9. Let's look at the kingdom of God in person asking other persons to join his shalom project. You with me? Luke chapter 9, verse 1. When Jesus had called the 12 together, you'll remember if you were around last week, I think it was, we saw the calling of these 12, the symbolic representations of a renewed people of God. He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the what? 
kingdom of God and to what? Heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Yikes. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. And if people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming what? Good news and healing people everywhere. Wow, that looks a lot like verse 2. Verse 7. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. Others said that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, "Um, I beheaded John. Who then is this that I hear such things about? And he tried to see him, him being Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, thanks be to God. Here's our big idea for the evening as we look at our fifth and final core practice of the neighborhood church. God's still looking for co-laborers in his shalom project. Jesus, y'all ready for this? There's a lot of italics and a lot of prepositions and pronouns. Ready? Here we go. Jesus gives what he has to do what he does, how he does it, to make the kingdom visible in the world. The good news is the teachers in our church are like fine arts, math, and counselors, so I don't even know if there are actually prepositions, but let's look at that sentence again. Jesus gives what he has to do what he does, how he does it, to make the kingdom visible in the world. That's a lot. Let's tease it out. Our first statement there is this. Jesus gives what he has. You'll notice if you look back at verses 1 and 2, these Verbs. I know that. Verbs. He called. He gave. He sent. What he does is he calls the same ordinary, obscure, and imperfect dudes. Jesus had lots of disciples, and in Luke chapter 6, we saw that he discerned all night in prayer, came down the mountain, and he said, I'll take you, 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 you. And they say, cool, we're starting a basketball team. And he goes, no, we're starting a kingdom of God project. And just like the 12 tribes of Israel, you're going to be the people that are blessed by God to go out and be a blessing to the world as a renewed people of God. And I promise you, if you asked me, even though I preached it last week, name all 12, it would take me a minute. And what's hilarious is there's a few of them They have the same name. But these are ordinary, obscure people which should invite you to relax because these are the only kinds of people he calls. Ordinary, everyday people. But what differentiates these 12 and you and I are the people that are willing to say, yeah, when he calls. So he calls the 12 And then he gives them what they need to go and carry on this kingdom project, this shalom project. He gives them the same power, the same authority that Jesus has. Watch this. They are given the same power to do the same Jesus stuff 
as an extension of Jesus' work. And the 12 look around and say, he asked us to heal? I have no Advil. And they say, what's Advil? He goes, it won't be invented for a long time. And he asked us to what? Kick out evil spirits? What? And so at this point, the murmuring and the rest of the disciples should say, hey, we can't do all this stuff on our own. To which Jesus goes, uh-huh, exactly. This is why you've been with me to learn from me how to go and live like me, but I'll do you one better. Here is the power and the authority over this dark world to go and bring more of God's reign to bear on the territory that the enemy and sickness and hatred and sin has claimed. You can't do it on your own, but you can go with me and you can have what God has given me. He calls them, they say yes. He gives them the power and then they do an amazing thing. You know what they do? They actually go and do it. And this kind of works well enough, even though they kind of stumble and fumble the ball in the end of the chapter. But he'll go and send out more later so that when Jesus live, leaves, more will go and more will go. And so many will go that 2,000 years later, we're all sitting here because they went. He called them, he gave them, he sent them. And I love, love, love what Pastor Jonathan Brooks says on the south side of Chicago. He says, there are no God-forsaken places. There are only church-forsaken places. And I bet he'd be okay with me saying, there are no God-forsaken people. There are only church forsaken people. Amen? I love when we were talking about Jesus sharing a table. When the world wants to build up walls, Jesus enlarges our tables and asks us to join him for dinner. And I love this idea that when the Pharisees leaned over to these same 12 and goes, hey dude, you know your, your holy man is eating with sinners and thieves and why are they doing that? I love to imagine Jesus overhearing it and says, because you're not. And you ask, why am I? I ask, why aren't we? This is what it means to join in on the Shalom Project to bring human flourishing and goodness. But we're able to do this because of number two, we're given what he has to do what he does. And you'll notice there in verse one, to drive out all demons. Isn't that interesting? But this is so much of what you see in the gospel of Luke. What was Jesus up to? You would probably say like, oh, he taught a lot and he healed a lot. But one of the other things he's doing is kicking out this shadowy, dark, oppressive force that runs counter to the kingdom of God. There are other kingdoms at work. And some of them have some kind of personal spiritual quality. Others of them are these big nebulous forces that we can't really lasso up. And that's things like racism and greed and hatred. 
Those things we can't really throw a lasso around. But can't you understand that there are forces that are hovering over our culture and our community that are running counter the way of love and peace and righteousness and goodness? And so there's some territory that's been claimed by brokenness and and difficulty. And so before shalom flourishes, there must be a displacement of darkness. So I don't encounter demons on a daily or monthly or annually that I'm aware of. That's not part of my job description most days as a pastor of this church. But in Jesus' ministry, there's evidence of a flurry of opposition because they know that Jesus is inaugurating and enacting Jesus as the kingdom of God in person. So, so much of what Jesus is about is teaching and healing, yes, but also making room for the reign of God by displacing darkness. That's not to say that these shadowy forces aren't still present in addiction, and these other dark forces that entangle and enslave people and whole communities. I'm just saying there's a flurry of activity around here, and to be on the Shalom program is to displace darkness. Let me illustrate it this way. There's a documentary on HBO Max called Foster. It came out in 2019. Please watch it if you're ready. You will cry. You will want all the kids Go do it. But there's this woman that's a central figure of this documentary, and her name is Ursuline Beavers. Watch it to see how her name is spelled when it comes up on the screen. Ursuline, it's not how you think it's spelled. So now you got to really go watch it, okay? Ursuline Beavers is an L.A. County foster mom, and she is a saint. It's amazing. And in this documentary, she tells a story of Demisha that comes. And she says she came with attitude, and she came with baggage, and the social worker warned me about her. And day one, Demisha came in and said, my father said I have the devil in me, and he is not coming out. And so shortly after arriving, she's in her room, she doesn't want to come out of her room, and she goes under her bed, and Ursuline says, come on, let's go, and she says, I'm not going. The devil told me to stay under this bed, I'm not going. And she goes, listen, you do not have the devil in you. And then this child would say back, yes, my daddy said so. Finally, Ursuline had had enough, and she said, well, if the devil is in you, tonight, That devil is getting out of you because I don't want that devil in you or in my house. And so here's what she did. She had one of the other foster kids in her home go and open the front door. She had another one grab a broom. And she said, Demisha, here's what's going to happen. Devil, get out of her heart and get out of this house. There's no room for you in here. And she said this over and over. She's a praying woman. She's a woman of faith. And so she's engaging with this child. She's confronting this narrative, confronting this darkness. And she takes that broom in a stroke of genius and starts sweeping toward the front door. And in this documentary, she said, and she believed it. And she goes, and I did too. So she looked at this child and said, do you feel better? And she said, yes. And I think 
There's something about when the darkness gets displaced in your head and in your heart and in your habits and in your hang-ups, only then can the life-giving love take root and bring shalom and transform you and forgive you and liberate you from the inside out. And that comes by hearing the good news that the reign of God is at hand and you are not too shameful. You are not too broken. You are not too far gone. There are no God-forsaken people. You just haven't heard good enough news that Jesus is for you. He's with you and he wants you to say yes back to him. This is good news. And there's too many people in our community that we see, the 50 families we see every Saturday at our clothes closet that come for clothes but need good news. They need a friend to listen. They need someone to tell them that, that there's shalom to be had and it is within reach. In our call to worship, we had the Beatitudes, and so many people wrongly think that the Beatitudes is a spirituality. Oh, I've got to become poor in spirit in order to be blessed. No, no, no. The Beatitudes are not a spirituality. Listen, the Beatitudes are a geography. The Beatitudes is the geography of the people that are at the bottom of the pile in the world, but are very close within reach of God's saving embrace. The Beatitudes is a geography, not a spirituality. Take heart, you who mourn. The kingdom of God is right here. As counterintuitive as it feels, good news, your God reigns. This is what they're called to proclaim. Make some space, proclaim good news, and I'm going to show you again because it is like the thing we got to talk about in church. And that is what? The gospel. If someone said, what's the gospel? And you had one word. You say, Jesus. That's the gospel. If you had three words. Who's only giving you three words? But if you had only three words. They said, give me the gospel in three words. You say, uh, Jesus is what? Lord. But if you had 38, who's giving you 38 words? If someone gives you 38 words, I've done this slide, like we do this like every four months, and every time I count it, because I don't trust myself, and I'm like, this is not, it's 38 words. You don't have to count it. I did. We're going to read it. Ready? This is the good news. You don't have to read it. I'll read it. The good news that Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, is the reigning Lord of heaven and earth. And all people are invited to live in God's kingdom, filled with God's spirit, free from sin and death. That's the gospel. If you said, um, excuse me, pastor, the gospel is the ABCs, that you admit that you're a sinner, that you believe that Jesus is, and is that's cool. That's, that's like if, if, if you had three letters of the alphabet, that's great. But if you don't have a gospel that's big enough to be more than just praying a prayer and not worrying about hell anymore, you don't have the gospel. Because Jesus preached the gospel. In Mark chapter 1, Mark says the beginning of the good news, which is gospel. And Jesus says, hey, repent, which is turn and get on board with life and love and freedom and forgiveness. Turn to me, repent, believe that I'm Lord, that I am 
the, the one that God has sent and believe the gospel. Had Jesus died yet in Mark chapter 1 of the story? Yes or no? No. So there's something about his message, his life, his actions, and specifically his death and resurrection as the climax to that story. The way he's enthroned is on a cross. The way he's shown to be the true Lord is that he's Lord even over death. But if your gospel is just believe, pray a magic prayer, and never follow him or have any care about the rest of the world and its brokenness, and you're not joining in on God's shalom to declare and demonstrate this, your gospel is too small, period. And too many of us have grown up and settled for something way too small to account for the rest of what Jesus was up to. And what Jesus was up to was the kingdom of God in person, bringing to bear good news, Isaiah 52, your God reigns. Hey kids, what does it look like when God reigns? It looks like people are freed from the negative narratives in their heads, their hearts, their bodies are healed and set free. Their sins are forgiven. They have enough to eat. They're welcomed at the table. That's gospel. That's what we're after. That's what they were sent to proclaim. And just so they knew that this was legit, oh, by the way, here's what it looks like when God's kingdom comes. Stand up and walk. You're healed in Jesus' name. And so they drove out demons, they proclaimed good news, and they healed them. Because shalom work is a matter of show and tell, right? You all did the game. Some of you still do it if you're in elementary school or your teachers. And so what happens is you bring something and you say, here's this. And then they look at your like tattered old blanket and they're like, is that a nasty dish rag? They don't know what it is. But then you tell them, no, this is blanky. And they laugh at you because you're old enough to talk and say blanky, but you're still showing this thing. But they listen to you, how special it is, how it meant something to you because of who gave it to you. And then they start to listen and respond. It's not just showing. It's not just telling. The good news is about showing and telling. If we just go to the clothes closet and we speak no words, we do not welcome them. We're not actively engaging with them, praying with them. We're not gospeling. We're doing good work. We're not gospeling. And if we go and we pop in and we, we say, um, Jesus is Lord, and then we leave, they have no sense of our life, of what that looks like. We're not calling them into God's kingdom, into a relationship of discipleship. You need to show and tell. Is this hard? Yes. Is it messy? Yes. Is it a long-range project? Yes. Welcome to church. This is our fifth core practice, to bring this peace, to bring this shalom project, to drive out, to proclaim, to heal. So at the neighborhood table, that's why we share a Jesus story. 
seven minutes, English and Spanish, and we let Jesus fill in the blanks, and people are freed and pe- because they've spent 40 minutes talking to Bobby, happy birthday, and feeling love and feeling welcomed at the table. And so when we say stick around for a story, they do. They've seen it, now they hear it. However imperfectly, release the expectations. This is the project we're invited into. And you say, we can't do it all on our own. You say, exactly. But he'll do it with us, and he's inviting us to do it like him, which is the rest of our little statement. So we're also invited to do all of this how Jesus does it. That's the next section of my long sentence. Because how we do what we do matters to a watching world. How you speak to others is observed and caught by your kids. Some things are taught, lots of things are caught. Ouch. Can I tell you how many times I've resolved to never let my volume get just cranked up a little bit. And I've rededicated my life to Jesus at youth camp. This is an ongoing thing to remember. How you do what you do matters. How you do what you do in Jesus' name matters to people who are kicking the tires on Jesus and really suspect of Jesus' people. How you do what you do matters. So here's how he tells him to go, and it's really strange, right? Take nothing with you. No bag, but that's important. They weren't the first roving philosophers, healers in the ancient Near East. This was sort of common. And when people would roll up to town and they'd look all spiritual and they'd be putting on a big show and they'd make a big fuss of things and then they would heal something or they'd do these amazing tricks or they'd say these amazing words and then you know what they would do? open up the bag and hold it out like this. No bag. How Christians love people, free of charge, matters. Amen? Can we resolve to love people for free without an ulterior motive? People are not projects. And so take no bag, take no food, put yourself in a posture of vulnerability to be, uh, receive the hospitality that was so key in the ancient Near East. So take no bag, no bread, no money, no change of clothes. And we say, we stink. He goes, I know, but there's something about the vulnerability. You are coming with nothing to offer but love and Jesus. Show and tell. And then he also tells them, by the way, Remember that I came into this world with no shirt, no money, no bread. Humanity is what happened when divinity whittled itself down to a child in the incarnation. So he says, go in trust that God will provide for your needs and be willing to receive from others. Then he says this strange thing. How many of you were wondering why they're supposed to stay in one place? He says, whenever you enter, stay there in one place. If you walked into a village, somebody says, you can stay with me, very common practice there, and you say, great, and you follow them back to their house, 
and it's some roach motel, and you've got a little bit of straw over here, and then they serve you gruel, are you going to want to stay there? No. You're going to want to get bumped up to first class. But here's what happens. What happens to the host? How do they perceive you? What happens when people come back the next day and know that you're staying over there now? And what happens when the rich dignitary comes in and says, oh, this guy's a big deal? Come and stay with me. Now, all of a sudden, you're ladder climbing. We read epistles. Those are the letters later when the church is figuring out how to do all this after Jesus is gone. And they talk about where people should sit or shouldn't sit and where people should get seats or not get seats. They say, quit the social ladder climbing. Enter in, be incarnational, stay there. A few, I guess it was a month ago, I was up at The Rock, which is a community center that we do um, a lot of work with. That's where our clothes closet is that I've been mentioning. And I was with two friends who are from Argentina. And so I was out of my depth in wisdom and Spanish. Um, so I was showing them around, and then I introduced them to a pastor whose church meets at The Rock on the third floor, Pastor Julian. He speaks no English. And so now I'm really outnumbered, and the three of them are talking on and on. And I realized that I'm hearing some very strange things. And so I'm about to text Carla and say, like, am I hearing this right? And then they tell me in English what they're talking about. They told me this story that had made the rounds in Mexican ministry circles, and that's of this indigenous people group outside of Durango, Mexico. And the story goes that foreign missionaries would come routinely to try to bring good news to these indigenous peoples. And so part of their welcome ceremony is they take the maize and they chew it up into a paste, they spit it into a cup, and then they hand it to the foreign missionaries. So if you think that I'm out of my depth of Spanish up there, imagine what they think when they're handed this warm, mazy paste and invited to drink. How many of them politely refuse? Lots, so he says. And he goes on to tell the story, but to the one who comes and drinks, they are sitting, they're listening because he was willing to drink the cup. Do you have ears to hear? In our city, in your circles, are you willing to drink the cup? And if they're not buying what you're selling, the other strange piece in Jesus's how you do what you do is to dust off your sandals. What's that about? That's more about performance than purity, but some real religious folks, when they traverse through like um, the non-Jewish people's region, they would say, man, even this dirt is unclean, and this is a God-forsaken place. And so they shake the dust off their feet so that they would not bring that dirt into their clean religious space. Over time, it became synonymous not just with the place, but with the people. If they don't like your announcement, if they don't want that, what Jesus is saying you're shaking the dust off your feet in an effort to say, this blood is on your hands. I tried. I announced good news. I tried to demonstrate this news. If you ain't buying what I'm selling, I've got to move on to the other towns. This is what we see Jesus doing as well. So 
we see that they go in vulnerability, they go incarnationally, and then we see the obvious thing, conflict is inevitable. And so I just wanted to take one second as we wind down this message to talk about the fact that not everybody will love you and not everybody will want to hear what you have to say. Not everybody wants to hear what Jesus did for you in your life this week. That's okay. You just have to understand nobody's steamrolling and dragging people into the kingdom of God, right? And so I had this thought in my own life because I tried to imagine what it would be like to have conflict, like with my spouse or something. I tried to put myself into the shoes of somebody that would have a conflict, like earlier today when I snapped at her multiple times, and then I said, I'm sorry, as a threat to just get her to feel better so I could go back to doing my work. I tried to imagine that so, so diligently. And I thought about this. We all have these natural responses, right? To fight or to flee or to freeze. Which one are you? Are you the fighter? I'll show you before I knock this dust off. Let me tell you what's what. The others of you are in the back corner numbing out on Instagram because you have fled. Others of you due to different responses and conflict in your own life, you freeze. So we do this in premarital counseling a lot because what would it look like to move beyond? Like, it's going to happen. This is your natural human response. Fight, flight, or freeze. So you don't stay there. What would it be like to move beyond to the next step to inform? As a preacher from a Baptist tradition, I wanted another F so badly, but inform is the best we could get. And this is what I'm so imperfectly practicing is, what would it look like to say, okay, I fought, but now here's what I'm hearing from you. Here's what I need from you. Here's what I'm feeling. Fill in the blank. Move to a place of now I'm bridge building. What would that look like in our relationships with others in our life? What it looks like for Jesus, literally just in Matthew chapter 5. Dealing with difficulty and conflict, we can commit to these three things and perhaps in this order. The first is to refuse hate. In our church, we said that Jesus has rezoned our neighborhood, that everyone we come encounter with is a neighbor to be loved, not an enemy to be hated or feared. So you can start by refusing to hate any single person that comes in front of you. And then you can release your right to retaliate by turning the other cheek. Which is stronger, I ask you? Which perpetuates cycles of violence and brokenness? Which paves the way for shalom? Maybe if you would release retaliation. And then thirdly, resolve conflict. Again, in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5. You can follow Jesus and resolve to live Romans 12, 18. Look it up. It's powerful. It will help you in your workplace relationships and beyond. um, Strive to live at peace with all. Ready? as much as it's up to you. Because Judy's going to do what she's going to do, and you just can't live at peace with her. But as much as it's up to me, in my office and in my house, I will live at peace with all. Judy was fake, by the way. Let's move on. You're done. Let's go. (laughs) 
We go vulnerably incarnationally, and look, we release the expectations of outcomes, but understand that how we do what we do matters, because finally, people are watching. Herod was perplexed. He had heard these emissaries going out. He had heard that these things were happening, and he was curious, and he had no category for who this Jesus is. This is not Herod from Jesus' birth. This is Herod that jailed and beheaded John the Baptist. This is Herod that will show up at the end of the story that will see Jesus. And he will laugh at him and send him back to Pilate. He will see him eventually. And he will not want the good news and shalom that Jesus is preaching. The sad irony is, is that Herod comes from the people that knew shalom. But the call for us is to make the kingdom of God visible by having what Jesus has and doing what Jesus does, how Jesus does it, in such a way where the world takes notice, even if they're hostile, even if they're curious, even if they're confused, enough to get the conversation started. The question looming over the rest of Luke's gospel is this, who is Jesus really? And a question I'll leave you with is this. How would those in our circles answer that question based on the evidence we're presenting to them? What Jesus is being presented to a waiting and watching world? That's a question These practices that we've looked at the last five weeks, they're meant to be lived. Our beliefs about Jesus and the word of God inform our behavior, but we're called to live these out. And so to go back and let Ursuline have a final word, the lady from the Foster documentary, she said, you know, a kid wonders all the time, do you really love me? And what they're really telling you is, prove it. So what does it look like to bring peace, shalom, and good news, and to show it? And Frederick Beekner says, if you're wondering where he's sending you to go and bring it, the place that God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and shalom and the world's deep hunger meet. May you find that place in your circles, in your neighborhood, that is in desperate need and is hungry for peace, that is in need of liberation, that is in need of good news, and may you have what Jesus gives to do what Jesus does, to do it like Jesus would do it, where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet, so that shalom could flourish in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Tonight's benediction was written by our kingdom partner serving in Northern Ireland, Aubrey Smith. May the Lord Jesus equip us to be courageous co-laborers with him in bringing wholeness to this broken world. May the spirit of peace shape us into a people of peace. May we faithfully carry this shalom into all the spaces where he sends us. May our lives reflect the heart of Jesus in caring for every part of every human, 
bodies, hearts, minds, and souls. May God grant us eyes to truly see our neighbors and to love them as he loves them. May we stand alert against the schemes of the evil one who rages against peace and wholeness. May God protect us as we battle darkness, and may we be steadfast and confident in Christ's victory overall. May we labor in the hope that God's reign is coming in fullness, that our work is not in vain, and that the one who has the power to raise the dead has promised to make all things new. Go in peace. <laughs>